read um, the first six verses of the Gospel of John. And then Ben will come up and will teach us. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had, learned, had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and are just excited. This is an amazing passage, Father. We get to see you incarnate in your son Jesus meet with a woman of ill repute at a well in the Mideast and save her. This actually happened. It's not just a story that somebody made up, Father, but it's real and it happened. Lord, we pray that through your son Jesus, you would meet with us this morning. Amen. You may be seated. In June 2017, Alex Honnold climbed the 3,000-foot face of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. In and of itself, that is a major accomplishment, only one that the most elite climbers have done. But Alex's summit was unique. He climbed free solo. That is, he climbed all 3,000 feet, roughly, you know, three-fifths of a mile of El Capitan without ropes and without a partner. There were times when the only thing between himself and sure death were fingertip holds the size of a pea and little nubs on which to place his toes. His climb is captured in the movie Free Solo. Now, if you get a little queasy, I don't recommend this movie for you. Free Solo records his training, his relationship with his friends and girlfriend, and his unique outlook on life and death. One of his training partners, himself one of the best rock climbers in the world, said this about his climb, there's no margin for error. Imagine an Olympic gold medal level athletic achievement that if you don't get the gold medal, you die. At one time, Alex described himself as a militant atheist. By his worldview, this life is all there is. And so I think Alex was thirsty for accomplishment. But was his thirst quenched? When they asked him in the movie, he simply says, we'll see. Today, we'll meet a woman who finds that there is something, or rather, someone who can quench her thirst at the deepest levels. We'll join her on a journey discovering what that living water is, how we can gain access to it, how to share it with others, and who it's meant for. 
Now, in order for us to really understand what this passage is about, we need to understand the historical background. In fact, that is a critical aspect of all Bible interpretation. Really, any Bible study, we need to interpret and understand and apply a passage to our own lives. We first have to understand the cultural and historical background of the original hearers, which helps us get to what the author intended. And then we are able to bridge that gap from them to us and finally apply it to our own lives. So it's really critical, especially this morning, for us to understand what the difference was between Jews and Samaritans. So who were the Samaritans? What was their relationship to the Jews? I mean, I could probably just say the Samaritans and Jews didn't get along and leave it at that. But I know you are a little bit thirstier, uh, continuing with the analogy this morning. You're a little thirstier for more than just that. So the Samaritans are the result of an Israeli remnant that was left after the Assyrians attacked the northern kingdom. They took most of the Israelis away. They left a few, generally poor people, and then they actually sent settlers to be with those Israelis. And then those settlers and those Israelis commingled. They cohabitated. They, they had children together. And the Israelis actually adopted the, the, uh, the gods of these Assyrians. They adopted idol worship. But in time... They've actually kind of came back and abandoned their idol worship and returned to Yahweh. But even then, when they returned to Yahweh, it was in their own way. In fact, they only acknowledged the first five books of the Jewish Bible. Later on, Jesus will say in reference to Samaritans that they don't know what they worship. It's because they did not acknowledge all of God's revelation. Now, when the Jews, they were taken off to captivity in Babylon, when they returned from their captivity, the Samaritans offered to help to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews said, no thanks, you're not pure anymore. You, you're, you're, excuse the term, you're a half-breed. You've mingled with these Assyrians. And so we don't want your help. Well, clearly the Samaritans were deeply offended that their offer to help was not accepted. And so the Jews... Uh, and they established, rather, their own place of worship in Mount uh, Gerizim. So, just a little more background here. I think this is fascinating. The Jews seem to be the greater propagators of this hatred. Their rabbis taught that Samaritan women were in a constant state of menstruation, from birth even. From Levitical law, a woman having her cycle was considered unclean, and a husband that had relations with a menstruating woman was also Unclean. Even the spittle of a menstruating woman would make whatever it touched unclean. And so, by, by virtue of this, this uh, proclamation, all Samaritans, women and men, were ceremonially unclean. Now, it is debatable how closely Jews really held this in practice. And perhaps that view that some commentators grabbed a hold of might be one that really represents more of an extreme view amongst the Jews, but the point remains the same, and it's the one I started with, they didn't get along. Case in point, when the Pharisees really wanted to insult Jesus, they called him a devil and a Samaritan. And this context, again, is important for what John is going to show us about Jesus throughout this entire passage this morning. It will help us understand how radical his conversation is with this woman. It will help us understand her question about where to worship. It will help us understand the disciples' behavior when they return and they see him talking to this Samaritan woman. 
mostly will help us understand the heart of the Savior, Jesus. So Jesus had been in Judea and and, uh, was undercoming kind of greater pressure. He wasn't ready. His hour had not yet come. And so he decided it was time to go back to Galilee. Now there were three routes to Galilee. One could head uh, to the west and kind of head up towards the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. You could go east uh, through a neighboring country, or you could just go right up through the middle of Samaria. And most Jews did choose to go through directly through Samaria. It was the quickest route. And on his way north, Jesus stopped at Jacob's well near the town of Sychar. It was about noontime, and his disciples went ahead into that town to get food. And while he's sitting at the well, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? The Samaritan woman's question brings to mind another aspect of this unusual encounter. Not only is she a Samaritan, she's a woman. In biblical times, the general rule was that men did not speak with women in public. And for a rabbi to be speaking to a woman in public was even more frowned upon, even more strongly discouraged. So why would Jesus do this? Why would he do this? Why would Jesus kind of reach across the proverbial aisle to not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman? One academic said, Jesus is breaking down barriers. I see that, and I don't disagree. But I think it's more like he sees the barriers for what they are, artificial barriers man-made walls that prevent the spread of the gospel. And as we'll see later in this passage, Jesus is on a mission from God with his work to do. He isn't about to let things like artificial barriers get in the way. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus completely ignores the woman's question. (laughs) Instead of answering her question, he redirects the conversation to what he wants to talk about. If you were here a few weeks ago, or actually just two weeks ago, rather, when Lars preached on Nicodemus, it's going to feel very similar. The outcome is a little different, but it's going to feel very similar. In the same way that Jesus took the conversation in the direction that he wanted to go with Nicodemus, he does the same thing with the Samaritan woman here. He speaks to what he is primarily concerned about, living water. Well, what is living water? Well, to borrow a term from John Calvin, it is the entire edifice of grace. It is the whole structure of grace, redemption, salvation, forgiveness, new identity in Christ, a new way of living now and eternal life with God forever. I think that what Jesus has in mind here is the whole spectrum of God's grace to man that includes salvation from the penalty of sin, eternal life with God, and 
the gift of the Holy Spirit, all which come through faith in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is the culmination of the will of the Father given to those who put their faith in his Son, Jesus. Looking now at verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from him himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now, if you just detect a little uh, a sense of suspicion, maybe even a little sarcasm on her part, I think you'd be right. You know, he had no pail with which to draw any water. And the well, it, it still exists. And the one commentary I looked at written in 2004, as of 2004, it was still about 100 feet deep. But it is suspected to have been much deeper in Bible times and fed by an underground spring. In order to reach this spring, which fed the well, which is mostly probably what she was thinking about when he said living water, it would require some kind of unique apparatus. <laughs> You've got to remember that she's kind of on this plane down here. She's thinking about physical water when Jesus is talking about spiritual water. And that's why she says, you've got nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Man, you can't get to flowing, running water that feeds this well. Where do you get that living water? Well, Jesus said to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus continues to speak in ways that are confounding to the woman. How can there be water which would quench thirst forever? How can water well up to eternal life? She is definitely not tracking with Jesus. She is focused on physical water, but can we blame her? Have you ever been to Israel? Well, if you've ever been to Southern California, and you know how hot and dry it is there, it's very similar, but only hotter and drier. There isn't much water there. Life revolved around water. Day in and day out, she had to come to this well and get water. Jesus seemed to be offering water that was fresh and clean. Water that she wouldn't have to come back for on a daily basis. In fact, the Greek word for living water implies a, a running spring of fresh water. Uh, it was as if the living water that Jesus was offering her was a, was a fountain flowing with fresh water. Can you imagine? Put yourself in her shoes. That sounds great. Where do I get this living water? But Jesus is talking about something much greater than physical water. As the readers of this narrative, we know that. He's talking about eternal life. And he amplifies what he says about it. He's already called it a gift, emphasizing its freeness. Here he says that this gift, this, this well is, is, is welling up. And welling up implies a sudden jumping or leaping. It is a, it's a springing forth. Welling up vividly emphasizes the, the vitality 
in the fullness of the life-giving spirit in those who are born again. The living water that Jesus offers her is the abundant life that he talks about in John 10.10. It is more than just being saved from sin and death. It certainly is that. But it's more than that. The living water that Jesus gives brings you into a fullness of life that is not possible outside of him. It is a rich, deep, satisfying, full life that brings righteousness and purpose and meaning. But I think most of all, it brings peace. It is this peace that makes Jesus' living water so thirst-quenching. For it is peace, not just in the sense of well-being. Many, many believe in other false gods, and they have a sense of well-being. It's not that. It's more than that. It is peace in the ultimate cosmic sense with God that sets apart Jesus' living water. It makes it so that you only need it once. You don't need to come back again and again. When we drink of the living water of God, all striving ceases. We are satisfied and at rest that Jesus has, in fact, paid it all. This is why he quenches the thirsty soul in an ultimate soul-cleansing way. Just like Nicodemus wasn't tracking with Jesus, so too the woman at the well. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's not getting it, so Jesus changes tactics with her and ultimately provides her the revelation that she needs. Point two in your outlines. I'm sorry, I never said point one. We're on point two. (laughs) Jesus, the only temple. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. This may seem like a very abrupt change of topic, but it's not. He's been pointing to himself as the one through whom she can receive eternal life. And he's been using water as his object lesson, but she's not getting it. So now he makes it personal. Maybe you can relate. She had had five husbands and was living with a man who was not her husband. And her actions speak to their shame and illicit lifestyle. Palestinian women gathered water in the cool of the morning or evening. She came at noontime in the heat of the day. And when the women came to get water, they came in groups, both for social reasons and for safety. She came by herself. She was not accepted. She lived on the fringes of her community. Her mind was on her physical need when her greatest need was the grace of God in Christ Jesus. She needed the peace and satisfaction of Jesus, living water. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I really like that. (laughs) 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She's referring to Mount Gerizim. Remember our background here. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, I think this is really interesting. Some said, oh, she's just trying to change the the subject. She's trying to take the, the spotlight off of the fact that, you know, this is very uncomfortable for her. Maybe. I think what could be happening here as well is that the spirit is starting to stir in her heart. And she's asking the question, I want to atone for my sin. Where do I go? Should I do it here at Mount Gerizim? They could see Mount Gerizim from the well. Or should I go down to Jerusalem and up to the temple mount there? Where is the right place for me to be made clean? Jesus said to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You, you Samaritans, worship what you do not know. Remember, we talked about the first five books only. We Jews, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, the Old Testament, rather, in the Old Testament, the temple represents the place where God and man would meet. It was the dwelling place of God. It was essential to worship. The Jews did not worship the temple itself, of course, but it was through the temple that the Jews could offer acceptable worship to God. The temple really emphasized the presence of God amidst his people. But here, Jesus says the Samaritans don't have it right. And even says the Jews who really know who God is, they don't have it right either. No longer will the Jews worship in the temple in Jerusalem or the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim. But true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. So it's not about where. It's not about the building. But it's about how and who. True worship of God will be through Jesus, the only temple. Now, three weeks ago in John chapter 2, Jesus cleansed the temple. And then what did he say? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Here we see him use the woman's question about where to worship to again make the point that worship is not going to be about a place, but it's going to be about him. He is God made flesh. He is the incarnate word. He is the full and complete revelation of God. All the fullness of God dwells in him. Don Carson says, God has chosen to reveal himself. He has uttered his word, his own self-expression. In that word, now become flesh, he may be known as truly, truly as it is possible for human beings to be known. Excuse me, to know him. That incarnate word is the one who baptizes people in the Holy Spirit. For unless they are born from above, and unless they are born of the Spirit, they cannot see the kingdom of God. They cannot worship God truly. We cannot come by our own means or with our own ideas about God or even on our own terms. 
We come by the blood of the Lamb who atones for our sin and bridges the gap between our sin and rebellion and God's goodness and His holiness. It is only by the love of Jesus as the true temple and through Him that we can really know and experience forgiveness of sins and acceptance into God's kingdom. And in that kingdom, in that kingdom, there is no distinction between Jew and Samaritan and Gentile. All of that is wiped away. The only, here, there is one distinction. The only distinction that matters in the kingdom is belief and unbelief. Commentator Edward Klink writes, True worship is Christ-centered and cross-centered. Since the cross creates the appropriate worshipers, a new race even, of worshipers that are neither Jew nor Samaritan. So Jesus has been pointing out to her, it's not about a place, it's about me. You're going to come through me now. So in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Finally, we've arrived at the climax of their conversation. The Samaritan woman refers to him as the Messiah. Or to the Messiah, rather. And Jesus responds in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. Now I think this is interesting. In the Greek, the way it's written is this. I who speak to you am. If that sounds familiar, that's because it is. God spoke to Abraham, or excuse me, to Moses through the bush. I am. And later in John chapter 8, Jesus will tell the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. I mean, just stop for a moment. Jesus' self-revelation here is astounding. In fact, not until Jerusalem will he claim being the Messiah. Not again. This is the only other time prior to that. John MacArthur points out that in the course of a few minutes, Jesus went from being a a strange Jewish man to the Messiah. Now, before we move on to point three, I want to take a moment to highlight how our narrator, John, has given us two distinct people in which to show how Jesus' kingdom will spread. John wants us to know that Jesus' offer of the living water of eternal life is not about who you are or where you are from. Remember, Nicodemus was the perfect representation of the Jews. They were God's chosen people. And from an earthly Jewish perspective, he had everything he needed for access to God. He was very moral. He was a Pharisee, the teacher even of the Jews. But he left his conversation with Jesus in unbelief. It didn't account for anything. In contrast, the woman was at the very bottom of society. A Samaritan. She was even scorned by her own people for her immoral life, and yet she is the one who believes. You know, sometimes in life, it's about who you know. The social justice crowd likes to talk about providing access to education, capital, opportunities as a way to help underprivileged people. 
I actually agree with that. Without access to these things, it is exceedingly difficult to break the cycle of poverty. Now, when we say it's about who you know, it doesn't sound very fair. And it definitely doesn't sound very American. I mean, the American dream is all about hard work. And hard work will get you anywhere you want to go. But I think it's true. It's about who you know. But when it comes to the kingdom, is it also true that it's about who you know? 100%, absolutely, emphatically, yes. When it comes to the kingdom of God and to eternal life, the only thing that matters is who you know. There is no American dream of bootstrapping oneself into God's presence. It cannot be done. Knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior is the only way for full and complete access to the Father. Only He is the living water, and only He is our true temple. And just like Jesus shows us with the Samaritan woman, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your background is. You are redeemable. Not because of anything about you, but because about him. You can know Jesus even today. He offers himself as a free gift. As Jesus wrapped up his conversation with the woman, his disciples returned from Sychar. And I want you to note, it's interesting. They happen to show up at just the right moment, do they not? Doesn't God have an interesting way of orchestrating all of these events? Had they come earlier, the conversation with the woman at the well would have been broken up. She might not have come to the conclusion that Jesus really is the Messiah. Had they come later, they wouldn't have seen Jesus talking to this lowly, dirty Samaritan woman. Both points would have been lost. But in God's amazing, perfect sovereignty, both things happened. Well, they were astonished to find him talking to a woman and a Samaritan at that. Now, we'll see. Jesus had a few words of instruction for them. And let's look at that now. Point three in your outlines. Jesus, the chief laborer, and I'm skipping ahead to verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Just note here that the disciples are still not tracking with Jesus. He's talking about spiritual sustenance, and they're talking about earthly sustenance. And also note, that makes mortal men 0 for 3. Nicodemus didn't understand how to be born again. The Samaritan woman didn't understand what the living water was. And these disciples don't understand what true food is. We are slow to understand, are we not? But thankfully, God is exceedingly kind and patient with us. Well, Jesus, in in a sense, kind of repeats what Moses told the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, where Moses said, you don't live 
on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Manna had sustained them physically while they were in the wilderness, but it wasn't enough, nor it was ever intended to sustain them physically. Only God's word was able to do that. Only God's word, his commands. And ultimately, as Jesus will reveal in John chapter 6, God's word in the flesh, Jesus himself, only these things are able to sustain spiritual life. And Jesus says that his food, what satisfies him and fills him up, is to do God's will. Think about that. That's what he finds most satisfying, to do God's will. It's even more satisfying than food. Christian, do you want to live an abundant life in God? Do his will. Do you want to be satisfied? Do God's will. Do you want to be filled up spiritually? Do God's will. Do you want to be joyful? Do God's will. Do you want the cares of this world to pale in comparison to knowing God? Do His will. Do you want to have an eternal perspective? Do God's will. I mean, do you want to be called a friend of Jesus? Do God's will. So what then is God's will? What is the work, at least in this context, in this passage, what is the work that Jesus is sent to do? Let's see what he says. Verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Now as verses 29 and 30 tell us, the woman had gone back into town sharing what she had talked about with Jesus. I met a man, he told me all that I ever did. I mean, she and Nathaniel, I'm sure, are in heaven talking about these things together. Her testimony must have been persuasive because the townspeople came out to see who the Christ might be. And seeing these Samaritans coming toward them and the green grain growing in the fields, Jesus, as only he is able, creates an object lesson from the fields around them. MacArthur paints a beautiful visual picture for us. The Samaritans were coming toward them their white clothing forming a striking contrast against the brilliant green of the ripening grain, looking like white heads on the stalks that indicated it was time for harvest. Jesus is telling his disciples, listen to me, the harvest of souls is ripe. You know, disciples, how great the urgency is when the grain in the field is ready for harvest. If the crops are not harvested, they will spoil. So too is this call to proclaim the gospel. This is the work that the Father has sent me to do, and I need you to harvest. One of my uncles is a farmer. He and my aunt live in northwest Ohio, where the soil is very rich and the rain is plentiful. And unfortunately, it's a little too plentiful right now. He hasn't been able to get anything into the ground. And 
He was hoping to plant corn. Looks like it might be wheat. So I sent him an email and asked about harvest. I asked, you know, Uncle Dave, how do you know when a harvest is ready? And then once it is ready, how long do you have to get it in? Here's what he wrote. Wheat is ready for harvest when the moisture content of the grain dries to a level at which it can be stored without spoiling, which is 13.5%. Not 13.4, not 13.6. It's more exact than I realized. The color of the field slowly changes from green to yellow as the plants and grain dry. Harvest time is here when the field is a rich golden color. Farmers have moisture testers today, but in the not-too-distant past, they would rub heads of grain between their palms, blow away the chaff, and bite the grain to determine moisture content. It was not an exact science. So that's how he knows that the harvest is ready. Well, how long to harvest before the grain goes bad? Here's what he writes. Grain damage and harvest loss is typically associated with a weather event. First is wind. Heavy winds can break the stalk and cause the grain to fall to the ground where it is lost. Second is rain. A hard rain will make the heads heavier and cause the stalk to break and drop the grain to the ground and be lost. Third is rain. The moisture of the dry grain can cause the grain to sprout and rot in the head and be lost. Fourth is rain. (laughs) Extended periods of rain after the grain is ready can result in mold and render the grain useless and lost. These are his words. It is extremely important to harvest wheat as soon as it is ready. Nearly any weather event can be disastrous. Brothers and sisters, so it is with the harvest of souls. There is no type of death for the unbeliever that is not disastrous. Any soul not believing in Christ will perish and suffer God's wrath eternally. About 10 years ago, there was a rash of heaven tourism books. Chief among them was the book, Heaven is for Real. I wish someone would have written a Hell is for Real as a cheeky counterpoint, because while heaven exists for those who trust in Christ, hell exists for everyone else. It is a bracing, uncomfortable fact. For me, it is easily the most unpleasant truth in all of Scripture. When I stop to think of it, I mourn over those who I'm fairly certain did not have faith in Christ and died. My mind looks for some other way out, But there is no other way. There is no other way for man to be right with God except through Jesus. Against the backdrop of this truth, we clearly see the urgency of the work that Jesus was given. He came to seek and to save the lost and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the chief laborer. And his work of dying on the cross in the stead of ruined sinners is the chief work, but he needs co-laborers. To bring the harvest in now. Not tomorrow, when life gets easier or slows down, or when we finally have time to memorize that gospel tract or read that book on evangelism. If you have Christ, you can witness to what he has done. 
You can just talk about Jesus. There are fields ripe with souls. And every day that passes, souls fall off their metaphorical stalks and are lost forever. Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, published an article this week about the declining attendance in the Southern Baptist Convention. He cited many potential reasons, but chief among them was evangelism, or frankly, a lack thereof. He implies that evangelical churches in the U.S. are very strong theologically, but our evangelism is weak, both in effort and in creativity. I think he's right. We're moved to pity and are concerned for our neighbor. But why don't we love enough to be moved to action? We know they aren't drinking living water. They're drinking salt water, which kills. So what can we do to move from pity to action? I think we need to see three things. These are just three things that I give you today. We need to see the gift. We need to see the gift. We need to recognize the greatness of what we've been given. The salvation that we have in Jesus is a gift that we couldn't have earned. It's a gift that was given to us freely, and it's a gift that's meant to be shared. We need to see the gift for how good it is. We need to remember that we've been saved from eternal punishment. It's so easy to forget these things as we go about our daily life. But we need to see the gift. We need to see, number two, we need to see eternity. We need to see eternity. I think an eternal perspective is so critical. And I was reminded of Nate's illustration of the two workers in the factory who are going to do the same exact thing for a year straight, the same exact manual labor. It was mindless. There was nothing to it. They were going to repeat this task over and over and over again, 40 hours a week for the entire year. And there were two workers. And one worker was told that at the end of the year, they would pay, be paid $30,000. So maybe that worker starts out and they're with it for a little while, but eventually that worker is most likely going to quit and go on to something else. It's just not worth it. It's too mind-numbing. The other worker, at the beginning of the year, is told, you're going to get $30 million at the end of this year. Now, don't you think that worker is going to show up with the most chipper, bright-eyed attitude every morning to make whatever the widget is, to repeat that action eight hours a day without complaint, knowing that at the end of the year... They would never have to work again. If you've trusted Christ, it's no different for you. This this life that we have here is but a speck in in comparison to the line that goes on forever. It's that year. Then at the end of the year, then we receive all of the benefits of life forever with God. We need an eternal perspective to rightly order our priorities and to make the gospel, and not just sharing the gospel, but proclaiming the gospel. 
a priority in our lives. And then lastly, we need to see the harvest. The harvest is ripe. The harvest is ripe. We need to avoid assumptions and prejudgment like the Jews. I know, because I know you all aren't much different from me, that you have your favorite class of people to pick on. And I think that maybe they're not deserving. Take a look in the mirror. You aren't either. The harvest is ripe. Calvin says this in conclusion. How much more careful men's minds are for earthly things than for heavenly. They are so consumed with looking for harvest that they carefully count up the months and days. But it is surprising how lazy they are in reaping the wheat of heaven. Point four now in your outlines. Jesus, the Savior of the world, verses, verse 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. As we wrap up our passage this morning, I just want you to see two final things about Jesus. First, Jesus is the one who came to the well. He is the one that came to the Samaritan woman. And now he comes to Sychar and stays with the Samaritans for two more days. In the context of of speaking first with Nicodemus, the perfect representative of the Jews, then the Samaritan woman, and now the, the Samaritans in Sychar, we find that the harvest of souls is indeed a worldwide one. And that brings us to our second point. The Samaritans had heard of Jesus through the woman, but after meeting with him, after a personal experience with him, they believed and proclaimed their belief that he is the savior of the world and of their own souls. They had to meet with him for themselves before they could truly believe. As Leon Morris wrote, faith is not faith as long as it rests on the testimony of another. There must be personal knowledge of Christ if there is to be an authentic Christian experience. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is for everyone. It doesn't discriminate on the basis of sex, race, color, background, or heritage. The only thing that matters is belief. Will you believe on Jesus? for your removal of sin and guilt, trusting in him alone, will you be born again? If you will believe, you will be saved. If you do not believe, God's wrath remains on you. And that's the question for you. Just like these Samaritans personally met with Jesus, have you met with Jesus yet? Do you really know him? I pray that you have. He wants to meet with you just like he did the Samaritan woman. Please stand with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful word this morning. We thank you for the living water of Jesus. 
which refreshes our souls once again this morning. We thank you that he is our true and only temple by which we are able to come and be right with you. Lord, charge us this morning. Help us to see the beauty of the gift that you've given us in Jesus. Help us to see that eternity is forever and and now is just a, a short time. Help us to live with priorities that are ordered by that vision. And help us to see the harvest of souls, Lord. We pray for our neighborhoods. We pray for our families. We pray for Littleton, for Colorado, for the United States, and for the world. Lord, that many more would come to know your son Jesus and to drink of the thirst-quenching living water of him. It's his